The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. India should also be understood as a test case of democracy outside the Western world. How it has survived despite all doomsday predictions that the grand experiment of India developing as electoral democracy is surely going to fail. India will fragment into pieces. And so all those things, we have survived that with our imperfections. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. Is India still a democracy? This was the subject in a recent symposium in the Journal of Democracy. It's also a subject I hear discussed among many scholars of democracy. A few years ago, the Varieties of Democracy labeled India as an electoral autocracy. Since then, many scholars I admire and respect have taken different sides on this issue. Rahul Verma argues India is still a democracy. His article in the symposium is titled, The Exaggerated Death of Indian Democracy. He argues Indian democracy is not as bad as many say, and has even improved in some ways. I reached out to Rahul because I wanted to hear his perspective. He is a fellow at the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi. He's also not a cheerleader for the BJP, but he does make a case that is much more optimistic about India than we typically hear. Still, I press him hard on some of his claims because I genuinely wanted to hear his responses. On the whole, I think this is one of the more interesting conversations. Now, before we start, I want to give a quick thanks to Stan Masters and Mia Suzuki for putting together the episode transcript. Like always, you can send me questions or comments to jkempf at democracyparadox.com. But for now, here is my conversation with Rahul Verma. Rahul Verma, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you so much, Justin, for having me. Well, Rahul, I thought your article in the recent journal of Democracy, The Exaggerated Death of Indian Democracy, was quite fascinating because it definitely cuts against the grain of a lot of the conversations that we have in the, I guess I would call it democracy community about India. And you make some really interesting insights here. In fact, I want to read one of the quotes from the article. You write, the BJP dominant party system is marked by a paradox. Indian democracy is expanding and deepening on some counts and shrinking on others. Now, this podcast has gone in depth with a lot of different scholars about how Indian democracy is shrinking. So what I'd like to do is start with an understanding of what ways democracy is deepening in India. 
Thank you, Justin. So I would say that there are scholars who have actually noted this distinction between India's electoral democracy and liberal democracy. And I think what they are arguing that India is doing well or robust on the electoral democracy front, but the liberal elements of Indian democracy is under siege. But even those who identified the electoral democracy front, they have just stopped at, okay, elections are fine, they are competitive, BJP is winning and losing elections. So just saying that, you know, there is electoral vibrancy. What I wanted to actually underline that behind this electoral vibrancy, what we are also witnessing is certain paradoxes. It's not just vibrant that you're just having elections. It's widening and deepening in certain respects. So in what sense is it widening or deepening? Basically, the turnout rates in India have been increasing. India does not have a compulsory voting system. Our turnout rates, which were somewhere around 58-59% in early 2000s, in 2014, when BJP and Modi came to power for the first time, the turnout actually jumped by 6 percentage points. And in 2019, the turnout again jumped by and a half percentage points. So overall, the turnout is increasing. It also seems to be happening that India actually used to have a large gender gap, meaning that women were less likely to turn out. That gap was shrinking. But by 2014 and 2019, that gap has now narrowed down to 0.0%. Basically, in some cases, women have started turning out more in numbers. More people are contesting more parties are contesting. So it's expanding. The deepening is happening as representation in the cabinet has widened. Now you have many more segments that are getting ministries and ministry representatives. The president of India and the last president of India come from very sort of like marginalized communities. And I can quote certain examples. Now, one side can basically make this argument that this is all symbolism and there is nothing substantive about it. But if it's happening at so many levels, can we simply just dismiss it? Should we not acknowledge this expansion, widening, and try to understand why this is happening, what this might be doing to our party politics, and what this might be doing to our democracy? I think there's no better example than Modi himself. I mean, he's a member of the OBCs, the other backward classes. And it's important because. In the past, the prime minister has oftentimes come from the Brahmin class, and that's most exemplified by the Indian National Congress and the Gandhi family. And so, again, it's this paradox where India is becoming more illiberal in many ways, but at the same time, it seems to become more open to participation from different groups that were somehow not formally kept out of power, but informally kept out of power. And that's something that I've been trying to grapple with and struggle to really put my head around, just with the way that participation has evolved in India in recent years, especially under the BJP. I wouldn't fully agree with this painting of India becoming a illiberal democracy. Of course, there are certain elements within our democracy which are not doing well. But have we reached at the stage where we can call Indian democracy as an illiberal democracy? I don't know. I'm not saying no, but one will have to give me more concrete evidences to say that this is the baseline and this is the inflection point where we should call it an illiberal democracy. I think both those who argue that 
Indian democracies under siege or those who say it's not would agree on certain components. First, we all agree that Indian democracy has never been perfect. And it's not to say that, oh, the society by large is feudal and Indians show anti-democratic attitudes and India has caste system, which is anti-democratic in its essence. But think of it like such a large polity, a continent-sized polity, very poor, had been ravaged by 200 years of colonialism, was partitioned along the lines of religion. And so with such a diverse society, governance is always going to be a challenge. There is always going to be multiple demands on the state and any party which will come to power will be basically juggling to cater to all kinds of demand. And that has also produced some imperfections of democracy. What I wanted to indicate from my piece and some others have also alluded to it, India should also be understood as a test case of democracy outside the Western world. How it has survived despite all doomsday predictions that the grand experiment of India developing as electoral democracy is surely going to fail. India will fragment into pieces. And so all those things, we have survived that with our imperfections. So I want to acknowledge all imperfections. And second, I'm not at all going to basically say that there are not elements within our democracy, which I as a citizen of this country should be concerned about. And I can list as many of them. And so are many multi-ethnic societies going through that kind of problem. Where I basically disagree with the current scholarship that we jump to labels too quickly and too soon. Maybe they are able to see something which I'm not able to see so they can see something might happen in future. And there are elements present of it. But then the pieces has to be written that, yes, there are enough evidence which basically indicates that five years down the line, 10 years down the line, or two years down the line, things will basically go off the mark. So you mentioned how important Indian democracy is because it has a post-colonial tradition. People have expected the demise of Indian democracy since its beginning. And yet Indian democracy has survived for over 70 years now. I believe, I firmly believe that part of the reason for so much criticism of India as a democracy is due to the fact that it's one of the most important democracies in the world. It's really the second most important democracy after the United States, which again is another democracy that receives an incredible amount of criticism about itself. But at the same time, a lot of the criticism about Indian democracy comes from outside of India. It comes from the West. So I'd like to ask you, what does the West, what do people in the United States and Europe most misunderstand then about Indian democracy? Well, that's a hard question to answer for two reasons. One, I don't want to say all the criticisms come from West. Even scholars based in India, civil society actors based in India, scholars of Indian origin teaching and working in Western universities. So there is a range of people who have been critical of democracy. And I think any active citizen should be always reflective of its democracy because we all agree to this that there's no perfect democracy. Perhaps in Francis Fukuyama's writing, we get that Denmark for a certain period of time, but democracy is always a work in progress. And I think if you ask me what we miss, and I don't want to say it's Western scholars, even we in India, I think we fail to acknowledge the complexity of just running this system. 
I'm not saying India is great. I'm saying India is unique in certain respects. And you have to understand that uniqueness, the challenges that we have. Unless you are empathetic about those challenges, I think the criticism then looks like being judgmental. My request and plea is to be reflective and reflective from an empathetic standpoint, then trying to tell us how things should be and what our comparison yard should be. Our comparison yard should always be first us and how can we better tomorrow from how we were yesterday. And then the second comparative chart should be, okay, you know, other countries are doing this. There are good things which we can learn from there. At the same time, India is a role model for a lot of developing countries who are aspiring to become a democracy. So to simply say that India should only be compared against itself, I mean, a lot of countries are comparing themselves against India and are looking to India for inspiration, especially countries mm. that have ethnic challenges, that have so much different diversity among religion, among ethnicity, and are trying to find a road to democracy. So, I mean, is it completely fair to say that India should only be judged against itself? No, Justin, that should be the first yardstick of comparison. And then you should also be looking towards inspiration to other countries, like whatever good in those systems are, we should definitely try to learn from those systems and sometimes even from their mistakes, which is very, very important. If you want to become role models for others, of course, you should also have role models for yourself. And so when I'm saying India has to be compared with its own past and its own future, even in these 70 years of India being an independent nation state, on same questions, at different moments of time, we have succeeded. And at different moments of time, we have failed on the same question. For example, India's Northeast. It has been a challenge. India managed to make great strides in being able to bring these sort of like peripheral areas into mainstream body politic in 90s and 2000s. And now there are again tensions rising up. And so this is to basically say that we need to learn from what we were doing right at those moments and what wrong we are doing at this moment that all the gains that we made in these 20 years. And th that's not at all to say that in those 20 years, the integration of Northeast with India was perfect. Perfection is something which I think we all just chase. We never reach. But because of its uniqueness, one has to first look within. If your gaze is only going to be from outside to India, then perhaps you'll be missing the picture. No, and that's that's completely fair. And of course, the way that you describe that India has had its bright spots and its not so bright spots, I mean, it's very similar to the United States. I mean, the United States yeah. throughout its history has had challenges and it's had moments that we were not at our best. And of course, we've had moments that demonstrated the best parts of our character. So, I mean, the experience of India in a lot of ways is not completely different from other countries. You are absolutely right when you are comparing India against United States. But in that comparative scale, Huntington wrote long back about three waves of democratization. And if you go by the Huntingtonian logic, we are in the world of global recession on democracy question. But I don't know whether you have come across any piece on India's democratic backsliding, which argues about external factors. 
and there was some consensus that the crest and troughs are also being formed because of the external pressures in the system. But India's democratic backsliding is basically being reduced to one party in power. Then the scholarship is missing what external factors, and maybe in the current moment, it's possible that those external factors don't apply to India. But then you have to show that those are hypotheses. You have to test those hypotheses to show that all other factors don't apply and only the party in power is responsible for democratic backsliding in last nine years. I don't know. I feel like the story of backsliding in India is told as a global story of backsliding throughout the world and that Modi is oftentimes compared against other leaders in democracies such as Orban in Hungary, Trump in the United States and many others. And sometimes mm. those characteristics have parallels. Sometimes they don't. Mm. So it's a complicated story. It's a complicated question, but I don't think India is told as a unique story of democratic backsliding. I mean, I think the challenge for India in particular is the fact that it's such a large country, the fact that it's so important in terms of how we think about democracy, that I think everybody looks to India as a leader, I mean, it's going to be a leader on the international stage, whether it wants to be or not. And I think that's one of the challenges. Now, I would like to know in terms of Narendra Modi and the BJP, do you feel like India has become more illiberal under the BJP and Narendra Modi? Or is that a false narrative? So let me answer this question in a following way, which was also part of my piece that if you are going to compare Indian democracy from 1989 to 2014, vis-a-vis -vis 2014 onwards, and if that's the metric, that's the baseline, then of course India has declined on certain indicators which form the basis of democracy indices. And that's where one confounding variable comes into play, which is the 1989 to 2014 period in Indian politics was a period of coalition era, and this is a dominant party system era. Now, just by virtue of party system changes, the institutional balance of power changes. And so institutions became more assertive during the coalition era, and now the legislative party is more assertive compared to institutions and dominating over other independent institutions. So that's a function of a dominant party system. Most often, dominant party systems are also presided by a very charismatic and popular leader, which also creates this assumption, or not assumption, but in some ways, it just flows into this thing that there is going to be some sort of like greater centralization of power because there is a charismatic leader presiding over the entire system. So if you ask me, my submission would be that any kind of dominant party system and any kind of grouping holding power, whether on sort of like extreme right or extreme left, is bad for democracy with difference. It's just the nature of dominant systems. When they rise, they are going to bring certain what we will call as anti-democratic sentiment. So in that sense, the rise of dominant party system has created space for anti-democratic sentiments, which is marked by a desire for a strong leader, which is marked by more technocratic system. And 
perhaps these leaders and these systems rise because the old systems collapse under the weight of their own inefficiencies. And that's the cycle. Second, what I would like to point out, especially given the BJP, though they may not want to describe themselves as a conservative party, but BJP is certainly a party which is on center right. And on the question of minority rights, and especially Muslims, their record has not been great. And it's not just what you can dismiss as fringe elements, but even sort of like people with serious positions within the party organizations make statements against Muslims that might basically create very unsafe environment for them. And so on those counts, I think Indian democracy has certainly taken a hit. So when we think about dominant party systems, particularly in India, I mean, I find it difficult not to draw parallels with the previous dominant party system, which involved the Indian National Congress. And my mind drifts to two key leaders that were charismatic during that period. One would be Nehru, who is one of the key founders of India, and the other one is Indira Gandhi, which is his daughter. Indira definitely took India in a much more illiberal direction. I mean, in declaring the emergency, you can make an easy case that she took India in a much more illiberal direction than the BJP has to this day. Nehru, on the other hand, did not. I mean, he is considered very democratic. And I feel like one of the big differences between him and Indira is that Nehru seemed to focus on building institutions in India. And Indira seemed to focus more on her charismatic personality. And I worry that Modi is focused more in his personality rather than building up those institutions of India. Is my understanding of Indian history, I mean, does that have some merit to it or would you disagree with that? No, I largely agree with your description of Indian history. I think I did a similar comparison. Basically, I said on most counts, India's current setup looks much more like the second party system. About the first party system, I think personally, whatever I've read about Nehru, he seems like a great Democrat. And maybe that may be part of his personality, maybe because he was also one of the tallest leaders of India's freedom movement. So you were driven by a very different kind of mission and zeal. You're bringing a country out of colonial power and trying to build a new India, right? Like his famous Trist with Destiny speech. But many features which we note are instances of centralization, which also then basically inflated to democratic backsliding, were present during Nehru's regime between 1952 to 62. While being a prime minister, he did dismiss the first elected communist government across the world in Kerala. And I don't want to do that counting of instances. Nehru, in some ways, if you think about the First Amendment Act, which India passed, where Nehru, in some ways, some would argue that he basically goes against the Supreme Court. Now, it depends on how they read the conflict between Parliament and Supreme Court then, and how they read the conflict between Parliament and Supreme Court now. Whether one conflict is basically trying to establish parliamentary sovereignty, and the second conflict is basically undermining an institution. 
and Tripudaman's essay in the same symposium basically highlights some of those illiberal elements that were part of what you'll call as the original vices or part of the initial institutional design. So that would be my first take on the institutional makeup. Second, I think Nehru, and to his credit, he went great lengths to ensure a more secular democracy, inclusion of all kinds of religious minorities into the body politic. In fact, he disagreed with then President of India, made sure that the establishment at that time didn't do anything which looks Hindu in character. And so he made great efforts at that. Now, the current regime argues that perhaps trying to parachute a secular model of democracy here in a deeply religious society needed much more integration and dialogue. You can't just whitewash a deeply religious society and some of its practices with just some institutional makeovers, some laws, but not having a dialogue with the society. And same thing, I think, where sort of like first generation leadership failed to have dialogues on certain questions which were needed. And many of those things have now come up with much wider fissures, much wider polarized society. And some of those polarized narratives seems to be reflecting that our illiberal elements have also widened. I think this is a very important conversation. What you're saying is, is that those early founders, people like Nehru and Bedkar especially, informing the constitution and forming certain values into Indian government, in many ways were imposing certain values on the rest of society that maybe they weren't completely ready for, that they hadn't had those debates fully. And so in many ways, Modi is not something new. He's just revisiting some of those debates from throughout Indian history. Yeah, all I'm saying is that given where we are starting in 1947, some of those questions needed to be debated on public platform in different ways. And that's where perhaps people like Nehru and other founding fathers and mothers of Indian constitution should have made efforts by not engaging in those conversations, by keeping some of this under wrap, thinking that modernization will take roots and all the traditional value systems of the society will slowly fade away. I think we didn't do justice at that moment of time. I think that this relates back to the original question that we had, which was about which ways democracy is deepening in India while at the same time it's shrinking on others. And it sounds like the early founders wanted to remove some topics from public debate so that they could ensure that they protect institutions, they protect liberal values necessary to protect those institutions and to protect the ideas of democracy itself. But at the same time, by removing those topics from public debate, many people felt that their voice was being diminished and that in many ways, democracy was something less than what it should be, that it wasn't Hmm. truly democratic. And so by bringing those topics back into debate, people who feel that those topics had not been resolved and agree more uh, with the BJP these days, 
think of Indian democracy as being deepened by revisiting these topics, by revisiting these issues once again, even though in many ways you can make the case that this is injecting illiberal ideas back into the body politic. So let me make two points. First, I think the two dominant party systems, one under Nehru and one under Indra, the difference between the two dominant party systems was also that in the Indra years, there was actually an opposition. And so even in this dominant party system under BJP, you have actually a viable opposition. In Nehru's time, while it was a competitive electoral system, opposition was really, really weak in its electoral strength. In fact, if you read the writings of Rajni Kothari, he would basically say opposition parties were basically just parties of pressure. The opposition was inbuilt within the Congress, which was a large umbrella coming out of the national movement. So the voices at that time were so feeble that even if there was an opposition, it would not become visible. The second point I would make this, because Indian, what we'll call as conservative right-wing forces, before 1990s, never had electoral power at the state level and certainly not at the national level. Before 1990s, or say 1996, 98, when first time BJP government is coming to power, I don't think you'll be able to show me campuses and think tanks and research centers which had conservative intellectual life in them. And so in some ways, one complaint which the right will have that we were never given space in this system. Of course, they had their own you know, organization, RSS and all those kind of things. They have one grievance. And I think there is some popular acceptance that elite educated in Western systems have not given us space. And they tapped into some of those voices or some of those debates and questions which I was mentioning. And I completely agree with your question that perhaps founding fathers like Ambedkar, Nehru and Gandhi, they may have been actually right in not opening up those debates at that moment of time. India was undergoing too many crises to be dealing with all those things at that time. In fact, Madhav Khosla has written very beautifully about this, that constitution in that sense is a pedagogical tool. It's basically a radical promise that these constitution makers are making to the society that by revisiting these old wounds, we are not going to move ahead. We will be drawn into sort of like old battles, which is not very helpful. So I'm not at all trying to put a blame on the choices they made. Perhaps those were the best choices they could have made under those circumstances. But the outcome of those choices today basically says, I'm giving them benefit of doubt of 1950s India. But today, when I look at 1990s and 2010s, I think there have been different occasions between 1950 and 1990s and 2010 when some of those debates and discussions should have happened. I don't think we have properly sort of tried to understand how to integrate a large religious minority into the mainstream of body politics. Yeah, I'm not trying to really blame anybody or yeah. even 
give a pass to anybody either. I mean, I guess a big part of my mindset is to try to understand from other people's points of view why it is that they think democracy is being deepened when so many people from the outside and even some people from inside India think of it as being under threat. So, I mean, again, like you described, I mean, it's definitely a paradox and there's definitely things to kind of take into account. I guess one of the thoughts that I have is whether we overstated how democratic India was in the past. Are we overstating how much democracy is declining because in the past we overstated how democratic India truly was? Yes, I think that's also at the crux of the problem. The baseline is not clear. And we definitely went overboard in celebrating once we managed to defy those initial predictions. So by 1990s, we were singing praises of Indian democracy where we should have been much more limited in our celebration of what we managed to achieve. That overstatement in 1990s and 2000s, and we also should have understood that at the moment, if you are seeing much more sort of like veto points in the system, it's also because the nature of party system has changed, right? It also brought some kind of widening of the system where you got many more people from the backward caste and poor and rural areas participating more in electoral arena. And so we over-celebrated those things because that moment of 1990s also marks the rise of all kinds of negative elements in politics. And this also joins to my first question. So while Indian democracy is widening on the electoral front, we are also shrinking. Most of our parties have become dynastic. Most of our politicians are coming from political families. Of course, elections are costly everywhere. And even in the United States, you have to spend a lot of money. But parties still in the United States and even at the state level are not dynastic in nature, that they are in clutches of one political family. India has some 36 parties in the parliament, and some 30 of them are controlled by single families. And many of these families are rising in that moment of 1990s when Indian democracy was actually expanding. We have so many politicians with criminal charges and charges not just like minor corruption here and there, sort of serious charges of murder and rioting and those kind of things. So at least 30% of our parliamentarians have that kind of thing. So in some ways, participation is expanding. The political class that we are getting is basically very, very limited in character. And so we overstated then and we are overstating it now. Again, I think Modi represents the paradox in Indian politics because he is, in many ways, a self-made politician. I mean, he's a self-made man. He is not from a dynastic family, even though he heads a political party that in the past represented high caste Hindus. And Mm -hmm. yet the INC, the Indian National Congress, is represented by a dynastic family, the Gandhi family. And yet they're trying to present themselves as very much a liberal democratic party that represents a more pluralistic India. And at the same time, they have a legacy of authoritarianism under previous leader Indira Gandhi. I mean, there's so many contradictions within Indian politics. And it makes me wonder whether the INC is really the right party to emerge as the face of the opposition in the future. And I know you've studied the party system in India very in depth. How does 
a true opposition to challenge BJP at the federal level really emerge? So let me say a few things about the adjective that you used for INC and opposition. And I think this also needs to be unpacked. While INC projected itself as a secular liberal political party, I don't think their actions, and not just under Indira Gandhi, even under Nehru, and even after that, basically indicates that they were that inclusive. How many members of scheduled caste became chief ministers during the 30 years of Nehru and Indira Gandhi's rule? How many women became chief ministers at that time? How many Muslim chief ministers were basically made? So there were failures even during the first and second dominant party system to expand and get more groups within the mainstream body politic. And similarly, I think many of these parties which claim to be secular and liberal in nature, their practice has actually not been secular and liberal in nature as they say. Can INC emerge as the focal point of a united opposition in the next election, which will happen in a year from now? I think that's a very likely possibility. In fact, last Friday, there was a meeting of opposition leaders in one of the Indian states the first meeting where members of 15 parties, more than two dozen leaders gathered, they still don't have a proper blueprint of of what this united opposition would look like. But what has become clear that without Congress, any such opposition alliance is inconceivable for near future, because among these state level formations, Congress is the only party which has pan-India presence. And so Congress is likely to be the core and nucleus around which this oppositional alliance is going to get formed. Can they trounce BJP? I think that's an open question. We will know in a couple of months what kind of issues become salient and what the oppositional alliance will look like. But certainly, there has been a secular decline in the Congress party's strength, what it used to be in the first party system, then second, then third, and fourth. And so slowly, a party which used to have 70, 75% of seats and 40% of vote share by 90s became a 30% vote share party. And now it's a 20% party in many of important Indian states. The Congress party is a very, very poor replica of its former self. And in the story of Congress decline is also the story of where this dominant party failed to provide wider representation. And This has been well documented by social scientists for the last 60 years. So how can our understanding of India as a democracy in the past fail to acknowledge our representational deficit at which Congress party was at the center? That part I don't understand. Well, Rahul Verma, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to plug your article one more time. It's The Exaggerated Death of Indian Democracy. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Justin, for having me. Uh, I learned a lot from our conversation today. Thank you for those provocative questions. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends because word of mouth goes a very long way. 
Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.